Have you ever been in a place that is so dark that you could put your hand right here in front of your face and not see it at all? I grew up in West Texas, not far from Carlsbad, New Mexico, which is home to the famous Carlsbad Caverns. And when you go to Carlsbad Caverns and you take the official tour, you go 1,600 feet down into the earth, into a cave system that's about 120 miles long. And when you take the official tour, one of the things that the guides like to do on the tour is bring you into one of the big rooms and have you stand still, and then they turn off all the lights and have you just stand in silence for a moment. And, you know, everyone is kind of doing like this and going like this, and, and, and it's a scary thing. And, and let me tell you, if you were ever caught down there without a light, you would never find your way out. And that's a scary prospect. When I was 12 years old, I went with my dad and my brother and some family friends to hike around a piece of land in central Texas. And we made an unwise decision to do some exploring at sundown and to cross over, to, to actually walk over, climb over a number of fence lines that all occurred at really weird angles. And we kept walking and walking. We kept going, even as it got darker and it started to sleet. So it was really, really cold, freezing outside. And before long, of course, we were lost. And there was no agreement about where we had come and where we needed to go to get back to our vehicle. And so we finally found a creek, and we followed the creek. And I kid you not, later on, we pulled out a map, and we discovered that the name of the creek was Lost Creek. So we followed Lost Creek. We eventually came out on Highway 71, and we knew where we needed to go from there to get back to our, uh, the main entrance of the land where our car was. But it meant walking all the way around about five miles on major roads so that we could see where we were going. But we were never more than about a mile from our vehicle as the crow flies, but without some sort of light, without some sort of spotlight shining up, showing us the way, there was no way that we'd be able to get back to our car by walking directly through the fields. It's scary when you're 12 years old and it's in, you're in the dark and you're lost and you don't know where you're going, in those moments, the hope of light, the dawning of day, is a reassuring thing because it means safety, salvation. And of course, that's one reason why the Apostle John uses the imagery of light frequently in his gospel. But John does something with light and darkness that may surprise you. While I'm sure you guys could tell stories about being scared of physical darkness at some point in your life, Jesus tells us in John's gospel that all of us, by nature, all of us, without exception, we love spiritual darkness. We love it. We love spiritual darkness. Listen to what Jesus says in John 3, verse 19 and 20. He says, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. So we, we love spiritual darkness because we love our sins. And we don't want them to be publicly exposed 
to the light. We are enslaved, really. That's the language that the Bible uses. We are enslaved to the pleasure that our sins bring us. And even in rare moments when we might be somewhat aware of the destructive power of our sin, we are too addicted to them to risk the shame of having them exposed. And if we're left in that state of spiritual darkness, we will be lost, wandering around the cavern of our own fallen nature without any sort of purpose or aim. But there is good news. There is good news. A light has come into the world. And so we come to John chapter 8 and the the next of Jesus' I am sayings. Let me set the scene for you here on what's going on as we arrive in John chapter 8. As Jesus engages in this dialogue with the Pharisees, it is the, great, uh, the end of the great uh, Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Festival of Booze. And this feast was one of three major Jewish pilgrimage festivals. It took place every fall in Jerusalem. Uh, people were expected to come and travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And it was th- this festival, this Festival of Tabernacles, was meant to be a reminder of the way that God had protected his people. After they had left Egypt and made the exodus into the wilderness, they, they followed God into the wilderness, and they dwelt in temporary dwellings or temporary tents or temporary booths. And so this festival was a way to remind the people of God's protection of them, even as they dwelt in these temporary uh, booths or tents while they were looking forward to the promised land. But by the time of the first century A.D., this festival had come to include a really popular lighting ceremony that happened on the final day of the festival. And uh, what would happen is that in the court, it's called the court of women in the temple, and it was, it was just adjacent to the treasury where Jesus is teaching here in John chapter 8. And in the court of women, what they would do on the last day of the Festival of Tabernacles is they would set up four really, really tall uh, stands. And on the top of each of those stands, they would put four really large golden bowls. So if you're really good at math, four times four is 16. And so 16 bowls setting over the, the court of women. And what they would do is they would fill these golden bowls with oil. They would fit each one of them with a wick, and then they would light them. And the ancient rabbis said that when these bowls were lit on the final day of the festival, all of Jerusalem was illuminated. The light would reflect off of the yellow limestone walls, and it just would be this incredible sight to behold. People would come out, they would sing, they would dance in the street. And you can imagine that in a time when there was no public lighting, no lighting at all after dark, This would have been an incredible sight to behold, right? These lights just flickering and and just illuminating all of the city. And so it must have been stunning as all this is taking place for the people gathered around Jesus to hear him say, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. You see these lights illuminating the city That's nothing. That's nothing. I am the light of the world. And so the rhetorical effect of this statement in that setting is undeniable. It would have shocked them to hear something like this. 
But what does Jesus mean by it exactly? I am the light of the world. What does Jesus mean by making this claim, and how does it affect our lives? And that's what we're going to accomplish this morning in our time together. We're just going to answer those questions. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm the light of the world, and and how does that impact our lives today, thousands of years later? And to answer those questions, we're just going to work our way through this passage, okay, in John chapter 8, and we'll do it in three steps. The outline's going to be really easy to follow. Three steps, and we'll... we'll, uh, try to answer these, uh, these big questions about what Jesus means in claiming to be the light of the world. So first, first step in our passage, what does Jesus mean by his claim, I am the light of the world? In the first half of verse 12 here, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the light of the world? It's not fully explained here in this immediate context, but in John's gospel, the theme of light comes up very frequently and in a number of different places. And actually, John draws on a theme, uh, this theme of light. uh, It's rooted deep in Old Testament imagery. Biblically speaking, light has to do with two related concepts. Two related concepts. One, light symbolizes God's illuminating truth. Light symbolizes God's illuminating truth. So just like a flashlight helps us to find the right and secure path through the woods, God's light as truth sets us on and keeps us on the right and secure path in a world that is ignorant of or opposed to God and his purposes. And at times in the Bible, this light appeared quite literally. So you can think uh, think back to the, the pillar of fire that went before the people as they were leaving Egypt. And so at nighttime, during the exodus, leaving Egypt, going into the wilderness, they were led, the people were led by God's presence in the pillar of fire. It was a light at nighttime that helped lead the way, illumine the path to protect the people and to point them the way forward. But more often in the Bible, God's light is connected with the truth of God's word. So you can think of Psalm 119. You you all will probably know this verse. Your word is a lamp to my feet, and your word is a light to my path. So God's word is a light that shows us and helps us to walk in God's will. Light in this sense is really just another way of talking about God's revelation of himself, his revealed truth that is found in his word, his word written, but also in the word made flesh, Jesus. And so it's no surprise in John chapter 1 that we read that Jesus, who is called the word of God, is also to be said to be called or, or said to be the light of men. He's the light of all humanity, the one who shines in the darkness He is the true light who gives light, who gives truth, not to just one group of people, but to all people. Jesus, in claiming to be the light of the world, is stating that he is the very embodiment. He's the very embodiment of God's illuminating truth. He is the one, Jesus is the one, who lights the way to God. He is the one, Jesus is the one, 
who reveals God's way to us. That's one thing that it means for Jesus to claim to be the light of the world. He reveals God's way to us. But light also functions to expose spiritual darkness. So light not only illumines the way, but it also has a strongly moral dimension to it. It shines in all the dark areas of our soul. It it exposes all of the dark areas of our life to the light of God's holiness and his truth. And it does so in order to dispel the darkness and to bring us into true freedom. True freedom. Later on in John, John 12, 46, Jesus is going to say, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So Jesus, in claiming to be the light of the world, is also telling us that he is the one who exposes and therefore can set us free from spiritual darkness. He exposes and therefore can set us free from spiritual darkness. Even those of us who have been Christians for a long time can still have areas of our life that haven't been fully exposed to the light of Jesus Christ. Areas where we are still in bondage or still in slavery to to lies, to thoughts, to fears, to practices, to addictions, to that one sin that just keeps coming back over and over again and to other incredibly dark things. And maybe it's, maybe it's gambling, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's gossip, or maybe it's an eating disorder, or, or lying, or, or some sort of sexual addiction, or maybe it's a fear stemming from something that happened in the past that controls us. Are you lost in or enslaved to any sort of spiritual darkness? That's the question I think that you you really need to reflect on this morning. Are you lost in or are you enslaved to any sort of spiritual darkness? And if you were going to be honest with yourself this morning, if you're struggling with one of those things, would you not say that it is destroying you, that it's destroying your joy, that it's destroying your fellowship with the Lord? Listen, Jesus offers freedom this morning. Jesus offers freedom as the light of the world. He has won the decisive victory over darkness. He's won the decisive victory over evil. He's won the decisive victory over sin. And it's a victory that you can take part in. Will you let him expose the spiritual darkness in your life and lead you into freedom? We'll talk, about, we'll, we'll talk more about this in, in just a few minutes, but we need to take the second step in our passage. Second, is Jesus' claim to be the light of the world credible? Is his claim to be the light of the world credible? Is he trustworthy? When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, can we trust him that he truly is the light of the world? Is it a credible claim? And on whose authority does he make this claim? We're going to jump over the rest of verse 12 and hit all of verses 13 through 20 in one big chunk, okay? 
And uh, what we're going to do is I, I want to read through those verses again, and I'm going to stop along the way to help clarify what's happening in this dialogue that Jesus has with the Pharisees. So look again at verse 13, if you still have your Bibles open in John 8, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to Jesus, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Okay, stop there for a minute. So the Pharisees have heard Jesus say, I am the light of the world. And they come to this conclusion, you are bearing false witness, Jesus. You're bearing false witness. And their unbelief stems from a legal technicality. Because according to Hebrew law, you need two witnesses to verify the truth of something. You can't verify the truth of something simply on the basis of one's own testimony. So instead of actually wrestling with the actual claim that Jesus makes, the Pharisees call foul because of judicial procedure. So they needed court reform back then as well. So they call foul because of this judicial procedure. We don't have enough people bearing witness to the fact that you are the light of the world, Jesus, and so we're not going to accept your claim. And this doesn't bode well for the Pharisees because when someone rejects Jesus as the light, more darkness actually descends. Well, let's keep going. Verse 14 and 15. Let's see what Jesus says to this. Verse 14 and 15. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, but I judge no one. So Jesus doesn't want to play legal games here with the Pharisees. His own knowledge about his divine origin and his divine destination gives him the right to bear witness about himself if needed. And the Pharisees refuse to recognize where Jesus came from and where he's going because their judgment of him is superficial. It's external. They are judging Jesus and his claim to be the light of the world according to the flesh. That's the phrase that Jesus uses here. Pharisees, you're judging me according to the flesh. That is, you're using simply, merely human standards to weigh my claim that I'm making to be the light of the world. But recognition of Jesus' identity requires more than just simple human judgment. It requires more than just simple human understanding. And for what it's worth, Jesus does not assess us according to worldly standards. That's what he means when he says, I judge no one. It means I don't judge anyone according to the same standards that you use in the same way that you judge. Isn't that good news that Jesus does not assess us according to the same standards that the Pharisees are using to judge him? That's really good news because it means that you can come to Jesus this morning. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what spiritual darkness may be there, you can come to Jesus this morning and he's not going to send you away just because you might be messed up in the eyes of the world or even in your own eyes. It's the good news that Jesus does not judge in the same way that the Pharisees judge him. Let's keep going. Verse 16. Jesus says, Yet even if I do judge... 
My judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So, when Jesus does assess a situation or a person, when Jesus does judge, his judgment will always be right. Always be right. Because he is one with God the Father. They share the same divine nature, and he has been sent by God the Father. In other words, when Jesus judges, when Jesus assesses a situation, when Jesus assesses a person, this is no mere human judgment. Jesus is God. This is divine assessment. He knows people's hearts. Now catch what is happening here as we move through this text. The credibility of Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, the the truth of Jesus' identity, is getting all wrapped up in Jesus' unique relationship with his Father. This is where his credibility flows from, that he has this unique relationship with God the Father. Let's keep going. Verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So here Jesus is essentially saying, if you want to get all legal on me, Pharisees, if you want to get all judicial on me, Pharisees, the conditions of my credibility have been met. My Father and I, two of us, are in perfect agreement, and we both testify to the truth of my claim to be the light of the world. So if it's legal precision you want, there it is. You have it. I testify, and my Father testifies that I am indeed the light of the world, and Jesus is so authorized to testify because he's been sent by God the Father as God the Son. And then verse 19 The Pharisees say to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So the issue comes down to this. In not accepting Jesus as the light of the world, the Pharisees demonstrate that they don't really know God. They think they do, but they don't really know God. God, because God reveals himself in and through Jesus. This is how we know who God is. He reveals himself through his Son. To reject Jesus is to reject God. So Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is credible. His claim is trustworthy because Jesus is one with God the Father And he's been sent by God to perfectly reveal God in the world. His claim is credible because this is not just some mere human speaking some outlandish claim in the temple saying, I am the light of the world. His claim is credible because of Jesus' nature and identity. He is God. He is God. So when he says, I am the light of the world, You can take that claim as credible. 
He is trustworthy. He is indeed the light of the world. Third step that we need to take in our, in our text. Third step. Third. Flowing from Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, he makes a promise to you. Jesus makes a promise to you. And this is where it gets personal. Jesus is the light of the world, but how is he the light of your world? Let's go back and finish the rest of verse 12. Jesus spoke saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the promise that Jesus makes to you is this. If you follow him, you won't stumble around and remain in spiritual darkness, but you will have the light of life. Or or better yet, the light that produces true life, eternal life, life lived to the full. Why? Because Jesus himself is the light. And so when you follow Jesus, he illuminates the right way for you and he exposes the darkness of your sin so that you can live life as God intended. Life free from the controlling power of sin and spiritual darkness. Life that's free of vice and addiction. Life that is full of joy and lasts into eternity. But catch the one condition that's placed here on the promise. Did you see it? To live a life free of spiritual darkness and to benefit from Jesus' light, you must follow him. You must follow him. In other words, this, this promise is not for those who would merely profess an intellectual agreement that Jesus is the light of the world. That would be like me, lost in the woods, really hoping to be delivered out of my lostness and to see a man walking around with a flashlight and to say, oh, thankfully someone has a flashlight and just sit there and remain in darkness, lost in the woods. The benefit is for those who actually follow Jesus as the light. Those who actually walk in the light are those who receive the benefit from the light. Listen, proximity to Jesus as the light is what will bring clarity and freedom into your life. It's all about proximity with Jesus. So get close to him. Follow him. Walk in his light by trusting him and submitting to him in every area of life. And as you do that, increasingly, he will begin to lead you out of spiritual darkness and he will set you on the true and right path that leads to fullness of life, joyful life, and eternal life. Do you want that? Do you want that in your life? Do you want that kind of freedom from spiritual darkness? So what, what exactly does this look like? What, what exactly does this look like? How do we follow Jesus? How do we walk in his light in such a way that we actually begin to see spiritual darkness lose its grip and that we actually begin to experience a taste of true freedom in our lives? Let me get really practical as we come to a close here. 
I've got three applications here that I think will be really helpful for you. First, to follow Jesus and to walk in the light means to believe the truth of the cross in order to destroy the lies that keep us in darkness. Believe the truth of the cross in order to destroy the lies that keep us in darkness. Here's what I mean. There is one particular super big lie by which we are so easily deceived that it keeps us enslaved to sin and addiction. And it's the lie that we are so messed up and so dirty because of what we've done or because of what we're doing that we can never be accepted and loved by God or accepted and loved by others. Are you buying into that lie in any area of your life this morning? That you're too deep in darkness for the light of Christ to come in and deliver you? That you've just been struggling with whatever for too long for the Lord to actually come in and deliver you and give you freedom? Listen, the cross is God's big nonsense to that lie. Because at the cross, Jesus took on all of your sin, all of your sinning, he took on all of your shame, he took on all of your enslavements, and he removed them from your account. He paid the penalty for them so that you may be fully and gladly accepted by God, not on the basis of your performance or lack thereof, but because of what Jesus has done. His work is the perfect work. So that thought, that lie, that I am too messed up, that I am too deep in whatever spiritual darkness I'm enslaved by, that's a lie. And it no longer has to have power over you because of what Jesus did on the cross. God's acceptance of you is not based on your work, but on the finished work of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we celebrate every time we gather together, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. And when you believe this reality, when you're gripped by it, the lie is exposed to the light of Christ and shown to be false. The chains fall off, and we find our hearts eager to take our junk to the one who has loved us so incredibly well. What's more, the gospel proclaims that those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. So you can turn to Jesus this morning. You can follow him no matter what's there under the surface. No matter what spiritual darkness still needs to be exposed to the light of Christ. You can turn and follow Jesus. He's not going to shame you. He took that shame on the cross. So go to him. Go to him. Allow his light to begin to bring you into true freedom as it exposes spiritual darkness that may still be there under the surface. So that's where I would recommend you start. Let the truth of the cross break the chains and destroy the lies that keep you in spiritual darkness. Second, 
Second application. Walk in the light by confessing any area of pretense in your life. That is, any area in your life where you know you're living a lie, where you profess and say one thing about who you are, but under the surface, things are really different. Walk in the light by confessing any area of pretense in your life. Now, you'll only be able to do number two application if you do number one first. Because the implications of the gospel are the fuel for actually living a sincere and open life that's exposed to the light of Christ. And once the lie that you can never be accepted, once that lie begins to lose its grip in the light of the cross, it becomes critical to confess any pretense, anything that, uh, any area that you're living a lie, it becomes critical to confess any darkness, any spiritual darkness that has enslaved you. Confess it to God and to other brothers and sisters who are walking in the light. Now, I know that can be a really scary prospect because if you have something that's going on in your life that you're kind of ashamed of, that you've been hiding for a lot of years, that can be a really scary prospect to confess And I'm not saying that you should just confess and share with anyone. Use use wisdom, use discretion, but it's very, very easy to fall back into spiritual darkness when you're trying to work out of it just by yourself. There's something about bringing trusted friends into the struggle, friends who will listen to you, friends who will love you and accept you in Christ that keeps you walking with Jesus, keeps you walking in the light for the long run. You become accountable to other people once you confess, and you have an army of companions around you now who will fight for you and keep you from slipping back into spiritual darkness. And the church, and I know this is true of Cross Point downtown, this church exists to be that kind of community where we all recognize our need of grace in our messed up lives. We are messed up people, but we need the grace of God, and that's, that's what we celebrate, and that's what we cherish more than anything, the grace of God, and we want to be that kind of church where we all recognize the need of grace in our lives and are eager to extend grace and love to others. Finally, last application, and then we're done, and this is the good part. Enjoy the freedom of having the light of Christ. Enjoy the freedom of having the light of Christ. When you begin to taste even a little bit of the freedom that comes from following Jesus and walking in the light, when you begin to just taste it a little bit, savor it, enjoy it, celebrate it, thank him and praise him for it. Tell others about it. Stoke the joy that you have. Pour fuel on its flame. Because it is the joyful experience of this freedom, real freedom from real spiritual darkness in your life. It's this joyful experience of that freedom that will propel you to keep following Jesus as the light of the world for the rest of your life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's follow him and enjoy his light. Let's pray.
Jesus, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here. So thankful to be with them this morning and to open your word together. And I pray that you would set each of them on a path of following you so that they would know you as their light. Would you show them the right paths to walk through life? And would you deliver them and set them free from any sin that would compromise their faith or steal, steal the fullness of their joy? Oh God, grant that they would have life in you and have it to the full. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, our King, the light of the world. Amen.